This week, we discuss social equity programs, potential consumption lounges in Chicago, and how to get a license in Kenna Friendly, Illinois, coming up next on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. My name is Alexander Perez, and I am from uh, Aurora, Illinois. Originally born and raised out that way. Proud Eastsider. Uh, Got to represent my neighborhood. Um, currently, I reside in Pilsen in Chicago. Uh, love it out here. Um, and I am the nominated director of media for Chicago Normal. Snazzy Jazzy, Drum and Bassy Goodness was brought to you by Theodore West with a lovely little track called Aurora, where our guest actually hails from. Didn't see that one coming, did you now? So when he's not doing media outreach for the Chicago chapter of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, Alexander moonlights as a graduate student in communications and also works as a freelance marketing consultant. In other words, he's good with words. Brought up in Aurora, the second largest city in Illinois, also known as the City of Lights, and the home of Wayne and Garth of Wayne's World fame. Party on, Wayne. At any rate, Alexander has a very interesting background. He is but a recent transplant to the very hip neighborhood of Pilsen in Chicago, where he can now closely work with the good people of Chicago Normal. But his path to where he is today wasn't all rainbows and sunshine. Alexander explains how he was initially exposed to cannabis. You know, for me, I think like a lot of individuals that grow up kind of, you know, quote unquote, the hood or the block, um, you know, especially in our communities of color, um, you know, cannabis is just something that's ingrained in the community, you know, uh, whether indirectly or directly, um, you know, I, I, don't, I can't think of anybody that hasn't come across, you know, weed or cannabis, you know, in their upbringing, especially, you know, again, as a minority in those communities. Um, so my kind of exposure with it is it's very unique. Um, so my stepfather was a, a gang leader in the city of Aurora. Um, he was a vice lord. And so I, got, I grew up in like what would be considered a trap house, you know? So like, you know, it was a drug house, you know? But I, 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 when I say drug house, I, I usually have to give context because I don't want people to think that it was a decrepit, dilapidated building with like roaches, you know, smoking up in the backyard. Like that wasn't what it was, you know? Um, my, 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 you know, I was with, I grew up, grew up with my family. Um, you know, my mom kept a very tight ship. You know, everything was cleanly. Um, but my stepdad did what he did, you know, so he would sell cocaine. Um, he would sell, obviously, weed. Um, you know, he would smoke weed. So I've, I've been around cannabis 
honestly, my entire life since, I mean, I can think of birth, to be honest. It's terrible to say that, right? People are going to cringe when they hear that. Go, baby being exposed to cannabis? But no, my mom didn't make me smoke any weed or anything like that. I've just been around it my entire life because of that gang activity um, you know, and what my stepfather was dealing in. Um, so fast forward to high school, I believe it or not, I actually never tried weed, even though it was readily available to me. I never tried it. And so I think my sophomore year, junior year of high school, and mind you, I was already trying, I was trying to gangbang my myself too so but I just never did it I never really had um an interest and you know one day I did it was typical you know you got high you trip out you know with my friends it was, it was hilarious it was a good time um but slowly but surely you know I always had like a interest in in business and so seeing that there was an actual viable model or at a, at a young age I remember sitting at the, at the uh, lunch table in high school with my friends and you know this is a conversation I replay every day of my life you know, thinking, I remember talking to him saying, you know, what if we went legal, you know, it would be crazy if we could make a business, if we could set up a business and, and legally sell weed, you know, and like, there's so many people that I know that are good at it. You know, my stepdad's amazing at it. You know, half my family sells weed and, you know, they smoke weed. So it's like, why not do dabble in something that we are basically ingrained in? And fast forward to, you know, 2020 and weed is legal. And so, um, you know, I, I thought, what the hell? Um, you know, I had worked in city government for the city of Aurora for quite some time. I was in the mayoral department of communications for some years. Um, you know, I experienced a lot of success there in working for city government in my hometown. Um, then went on to uh, become the director of communications for um, school district 129, which is a, a large school district um, in Aurora, a very large school district, actually. Um, and then transitioned out of that and kind of found myself in a weird state of limbo where um you know, I love communications. I love business. Um, so I just, after I, I left my previous role as director of comms for the school district, um, I enrolled in grad school, wanted to get my MBA. Um, and I thought it was a perfect time to marry my passion and love for the cannabis industry um, with my pursuit of a business degree. Um, and, and so I find myself here. I, I knew in the suburbs, there's kind of like a drought of information, especially when legalization was taking shape last year and, and this year. Um, so seeing that I had an opportunity to move to Chicago, I jumped on it. I got in touch with a bunch of folks, um, you know, luckily came across Edie Moore and, you know, Chicago Normal and, and the great group of people that run that organization. And, you know, they really took me under their wing. You know, I had to pay my dues, of course, as everybody does. Um, but in the less than a year, you know, I find myself being nominated as the, excuse me, as the director of media, you know, working with them, volunteering with them. And I knew the city, I knew Chicago was the, the, the place that I needed to be if I really wanted to seriously pursue a career, um, you know, in this, in this industry. Saying you grew up in a trap house will definitely turn some heads and raise some eyebrows, but I think you'd be surprised by the actual number of people in the U.S. who grew up in similar households. Prohibition and stigma simply wouldn't allow people to be open about it. Now, not to condone such activity. After all, the whole purpose of legalizing cannabis is to do away with the illicit underground market and get it into the hands of licensed professionals. Allegedly. But that was the reality, and it does take some courage to admit to growing up in such circumstances. So Alexander is now based in Chicago, where he claims uh, that's where his career in the cannabis field would grow. But I was curious as to what his take was on the general vibe surrounding cannabis perception and stigma outside of the city. Oh, man. Yeah. See, here's the thing. Like, Illinois, Illinois is a blue state, right? Um, and that's simply because of the northern part of the, of the state, right? Um, outside of 
the Chicago land metropolitan area, it's it's a do not get it twisted. It's a red state. You know, um, there are diehard you know Republican supporters out there um, that are just staunch um, supporters of prohibition. And so, yeah, and even even in a in a city uh, like Aurora, you know, that deals with you know certain issues like segregation, you know, on the west and east sides. Um, yeah, you know, uh, outside of those communities of color. Um, there really was not a lot of support for cannabis use or, um, you know, promoting cannabis causes, even within our, our communities. Communities of color, of color are very divided on um, the idea of legal cannabis. I mean, I, mind you, I'm in grad, I'm in grad school right now. Um, I was actually called a stereotype by a, a fellow Latina. Um, I, I'm, I'm Afro-Latino. Um, I was called a stereotype because I chose to do a business project on cannabis company. Um, and so in that, uh, presentation, in the middle of that presentation, I was actually called a stereotype. Um, and believe it or not, like I have, I have a national award from, uh, an organization that recognizes uh, government officials under 30. I beat out a lady from NASA. Um, I have a scholarship, you know, that gives back to, uh, we've donated, I think over $2,000 to, uh, you know, uh, uh, Latino students from my old high school. So like to hear, to hear that, to hear somebody of my own culture call me a stereotype, I think really uh, drives home the point that, yeah, there's not a lot of support for it, even within our communities of color who have been impacted by it, um, you know, by, you know, the war on drugs. People in our community are still, there are still people that believe in prohibition and that this is terrible for our community. Outside of Chicago, it's still very conservative. You know, com coming from Aurora, you know, Aurora it prides itself on being a very progressive city. However, it's still extremely conservative. The people at the top, the people that lead the city, are still extremely conservative. You know, and I don't, I don't want to say extremely conservative, far right, anything, like, nothing like that. But they are conservative. There's, there's a very prevalent conservative dynamic that resides within the city of Aurora, and a lot of those other suburbs. You know, what I'm thinking, Oswego, Plainfield. I'm just going down the line. Um, but it's still, there's still very conservative spaces. So um, there is still that stigma, and people are still very close, you know, mouth about their interest in cannabis. And I know, like, I look, for example, so I have a college counselor, right? Um, I say no names, but, you know, this individual inquired about my pursuit in the cannabis. Um, you know, she knew what I was trying to do. And, um, you know, this person inquired about, you know, was there a shortage, this, this, and that, um, because they were interested in, in cannabis. And this, this person did let me know that their, their colleagues are, are definitely, you know, enjoying legalization. However, you would never see these people come out and say it outright. And I think that's, that's really what's taking place. I think that's, you're seeing a lot of that, especially in the professional world. Um, you're, you're seeing a lot of that. And I feel like that stigma is still unfavorably um, set or rested on the shoulders of minorities. Um, because especially as a minority operating in a professional capacity, you still have that stigma of even talking about cannabis. Because, you know, when I was working for the city of Aurora, I had I had white counterparts that would openly talk about cannabis use or prior cannabis use. Um, or going to Colorado, right in the in, you know in the heyday of their legalization, um, and and no no fear no fear of retribution, no fear of retaliation or drug testing whatsoever. But for myself, you know, I went on a trip to Colorado while I was working for the city of Aurora, and I was terrified when I got back. I was terrified because I was just afraid people were going to drug test me. They're going to like, hey. We heard you went to Colorado. Uh, can you step in the bathroom for a second? Um, you know, and I think that stigma still is extremely prevalent um, in, in in the in the in the communities that, that are in the city or in in the state, but very much so in those communities of color, um, and specifically specifically within those 
professionals of, of, of color. There's still a lot of, you know, I've, I've worked with lawyers and they've openly expressed to me, black lawyers, that they're like, yeah, I'm definitely kind of curious as we, as we, you know, we call them. However, they're still afraid because they don't want to be drug tested. They don't want to be associated um, with that just because of, you know, the stigma. So even with medical cannabis being legal for a few years now in Illinois, you still have detractors throughout the state, throughout the city of Chicago, and even in black and brown communities themselves. Just because some laws are now off the books doesn't mean that society's attitudes have changed across the board either. That will take time and effort, and it'll be the work of organizations such as Chicago Normal to win people over and show them that cannabis is not Satan's Trojan horse to get everyone hooked on dope. That's the job of Big Pharma and their precious opioids for all occasions. But legalization in the state of Illinois is nonetheless a huge milestone for the cannabis movement. Having said that, like many other states, the rollout didn't exactly pan out the way most people were expecting. On January 1st, when dispensaries started selling to customers on a recreational or adult-use basis, the lines were several hours long, product didn't last very long, and shortages happened very quickly, to the point they had to restrict sales to medical card-carrying patients only. And many activists had even warned that this would be the case. Well, I wanted to get Alexander's take on the rollout on January 1st and other issues, setbacks, and disappointments that came as a result. It's, it's, it's a mixed bag of feelings, you know, like a part of me is very happy that, you know, obviously cannabis prohibition in the state of Illinois has been lifted. Um, you know, I'm very happy about that as I, as I can, I think I can speak for a lot of people, especially those in Chicago normal. However, um, yeah, we have seen a lot of issues. We have seen, um, a lot of variables that went unaccounted for, um, you know, and, and it has been messy. It's been a very messy process that's been rolled out. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, especially cannabis-related podcasts. Well, one of my favorite is The Weed Walks. It's pretty good. It's actually really, really great. And it really, they dive deep into like, you know, just the, the legislation. And that's really what they, what they look at. Um, you know, a lot of the legislation um, that plays a part in creating these cannabis laws and ordinances. And, and so it's, it's these two gentlemen that represent a law firm in Colorado. And they've actually been helping. They, they work across the country, you know, in states that are legalizing. And, you know, they've been happy with... Illinois, because Illinois was kind of uh, an experiment, right, in having, uh, so using social equity, implementing social equity, but then the way they passed their ability to, to legalize cannabis, right? And so a lot of people praise Illinois, right? I did too. Um, but, but what we're seeing as, you know, that kind of excitement recedes and, you know, what's being exposed now is that there are a lot of issues. Um, there's a lot of shady activity that's taking place. Um, and, you know, people that are real social equity applicants are not happy. Um, you know, there's a lot of variables that, again, went on account for the, the state pushing back the licenses, which in my honest opinion, I think, you know, isn't the worst thing given what's going on with the pandemic. Um, you know, however, the state has waited to the last minute for a couple of times to announce, you know, these pushbacks. You know, for example, the um, licenses, their submissions for uh, craft grow transportation and infusion licenses. I think they waited to the day before they were supposed to be submitted to announce, hey, we're pushing that back. You know, and then the same thing with the licenses being pushed back for dis for distribution on uh, May second. You know, the state waited, I think, three days prior to announce that you know we we're they were pushing that back. And so um, communication has been a little shaky. Um, you know, one of the issues right now that Chicago Normal is facing um, is that you know we're waiting for money that the state has promised to provide us. Right. So you know, we applied for a grant for an educational grant. We made good on that grant. Right. We did the um, the social equity assistance series 
Um, and but that's prior to the 420 health fair, um, right? And that was in a collaboration with the state. So the state, we won the we won the grant. The state says, okay, we're you know we're gonna give you this money. However, it's 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 gonna be reimbursed. Meaning we we want you to spend this money first. We'll reimburse you. Cool. All right, that's fine. So we then go forth and spend this money, right? Um, and it's been it's been over a month now um, or longer, and we still have not received any of that funding from the state, which is an, a huge issue, especially from a nonprofit standpoint, because uh, what essentially what the state is saying is that we're going to provide you with these grants, right? However, you have to you have to pay to play first, right? And for a lot of a lot of nonprofits, that's that's not always an option. You know, we're not we're not a for profit company. Um, you know, we're not amassing thousands of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars in cannabis revenue because we don't sell anything, you know, besides education and information. And that's obviously most of that is free, you know. So where are they? How how can they expect these nonprofits, these organizations? to front, you know, 14,000, 15,000 or, or more dollars, um, you know, when the, that's probably all of their operating overhead right there. <laughs> you know, that, that's probably all of their capital that they have stashed away right there. Um, and then, so you're asking them to operate on bare bones or nothing for X amount of time. And so, you know, the money gets sent to us. Mm-hmm. So those are just some of the issues that, that we're facing, um, you know, within the state of Illinois, um, you know, and again, I could I could go on and on about some of the issues, but I think to 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 not beat a dead horse, yeah, we were happy that legalization happened. However, there are a number of issues from obviously you know getting capital, which is a huge issue across the country, um, to you know finding uh, investors that are that are honest investors and are not trying to like you know shark you um, and, and you know pull the rug from under your feet, which is happening to a ton of black and brown individuals in the state. Um, and then there's still the age old the, the age old issue of representation. Um, you know, within the state of Illinois, they gave the first licenses to uh, the first dispensing licenses, early use licenses to medical dispensaries that were already in existence. A hundred percent of those uh, those organizations were white owned. Right. There was so early on in the game, there was zero representation. There was zero representation from the medical standpoint. And, you know, from the recreational standpoint, January one, there was zero representation um, in the game. It has been zero representation in the game in, in Illinois in terms of representation for people of color. Um, you know, and with the licenses being pushed back, that obviously prolongs that problem. And so from, yeah, from a representation standpoint, a lot of people are not happy with, you know, what's going on. And there's still the, the biggest concern of how these licenses are going to be uh, distributed um, because, you know, I can, for example, right now, I can tell you right now, there are individuals that are applying for social equity um, and they're just really suspect social equity individuals. Um, you know, again, I hate throwing out the race card, um, but these individuals are white, you know, and in, and they're 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 not only are they white, but they're pulling cards that uh, a real social equity applicant who doesn't have uh, you know an unlimited amount of cash will never be able to do. You know, it's not a secret that you can buy an application in this in the state. I mean, there were so many um, um, contractors, not contractors, but uh, consultants that flooded the state. You know when. Um, the application process was, you know, full swing. So you could, if you had the capital, you for like maybe 150k, you could have bought an entire application. And we know for a fact that people did do that. You know, that definitely did happen. And some of those people are are applying as social equity. Um, and and so that kind of dilutes um, what I believe social equity was designed to do, in which it was designed to give, you know, people from Black and Brown communities that were impacted a leg up. And the ability to get into the game, into the industry, um, we're even seeing that program face dilution um, with 
really, you know, suspect sketchy behavior. Um, and so that, yeah, it's, 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 it's not been great, but you know, with every, you know, every step of progress, you're going to have to fight for that. Right. And it's something that we knew that was going to happen. And we knew that we we're going to have to gear up to fight that injustice. And here we are, here we find ourselves today. So we're not acting brand new. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going to take on those challenges as they come, but yeah, there, there are a lot of suspect things that are taking place and there are people that are not happy. The governor of Illinois did tout the legalization efforts of the state as the most equity-centric program in the country. Compared to the other 10 states plus D.C., he may have a point, though it's still quite early in the game as other states have yet to legalize. So what does this program entail? In short, technical assistance for creating a business plan and applying for licenses, receiving points on application scores, reduced license and application fees, and access to low-interest loans. The state also wanted to avoid the mistakes of places such as Oregon, where licenses were dispensed all too easily, creating a massive surplus of cannabis that cannot be moved out of state. To avoid that, Illinois put a cap on the number of licenses issued. Alexander goes into detail how the state plans to distribute these licenses and what the process was like for him when he applied for a recreational one. Yeah, so uh, in Illinois, there's going to be 75 licenses that are going to be distributed, uh, the first wave, right? Um, and they're distributing them based on geographic regions. And so, and that's based on population, right? So um, in the region that we're located in Chicago is the Chicago, Elgin, Naperville, BLS region. Um, and this region alone, which is one of the most populated regions in the state, will get 44 of those 77 or 75 licenses, excuse me. Man, it's a, it was a daunting process. I mean, let me just say this, like, you know, my team, we had an extremely experienced team. I mean, the beautiful thing about, and I'm so proud of my team is all of the individuals are black and brown, the money, the capital is all black and brown. Um, we're talking lawyers, um, you know, so we're talking doctors, um, you know, educators, and these are very accomplished individuals and we struggled and, you know, we raised capital and we were able to, you know, to get assistance with the capital that we had raised. But a lot of the project, we, a lot of the application we did ourselves and we're talking hours. I mean, an ungodly amount of hours that we put in. And to, to your comment, I thought the same thing, man. I'm like, listen, I, I'm, I'm an accomplished person. I work in government. You know, I've won national awards. Um, you know, I'm pursuing a master's degree and I'm struggling. So, like, you know, when you look at these, um, these social equity zones, right, for people that live. In, in, in these areas that qualify, a lot of these zones are in extremely impoverished locations, right? Not all, but a majority of them are in extremely impoverished locations um, where you're, where, where are these black and brown folks supposed to be able to just get up and say, hey, man, I'm putting a team together. We're going to raise $75,000 in capital and we're going to apply for this. Um, that's not the case. I mean, again, for us, and we had, again, lawyers, we had very accomplished people. It was an extreme struggle for us. So where are these folks supposed to be able to get these resources to apply for this, you know, and, and that's where I, 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 my mind can't wrap itself around where that expectation was to get this flood of black and brown folks that qualify, you know, or from, come, come from these impacted areas to just submit an application in what they, they yeah, I mean, it was less than a year. Mm-hmm. So it's crazy. And it took us that, that entire time. It took us, what, seven months to submit. 75 licenses in an area with a population of about 10 million seems kind of low. It's understandable that they don't want a dispensary for every 50 people, but you can imagine a lot of areas will still be underserviced for a good while, at least as far as the legal market is concerned. But it's not just black and brown communities that face very strict entry barriers. The costs associated with applying for a cultivation license in this state in 2019 were... $30,000 for a non-refundable application fee for a cultivation permit, 
Once issued a permit, a $200,000 permit fee for the first year, $100,000 for an annual permit renewal, and applicants are additionally required to demonstrate $500,000 in liquid assets and a $2 million bond to the Department of Agriculture. So let me just pull that right out of my <clears throat> bank account, which is actually nowhere near that amount. I have my doubts about mom-and-pop operations in Illinois for some reason, but hey, at least the underground market is about to disappear, right? No, not at all. I mean, it's funny because, like I said, I'm in grad school, so um, I was trying to, before COVID-19 hit, I was going to present at a, um, a symposium, and I, my, my presentation was on um, the illicit market and how, in my opinion, I feel like the illicit market is flourishing right now um, because of the overregulation um, and the overtaxation of legal cannabis in the state of Illinois. Um, so there are some people, there's some folks I was supposed to interview for my, my um, symposium, but that fell through, obviously, because of COVID, um, we weren't able to meet. Um, but yeah, I mean, I personally know some folks that operate under, underground dispensaries that are, man, they're, they're pushing numbers. Like, let me just tell you, business has never been better. And in fact, which, which from a business standpoint, a, comp a competition standpoint, is weird because, you know, I know guys on the street that are matching the prices of dispensaries. And, I, and from, I'm like, wait, why would you do that? Like, you're pricing yourself out of the game like you know because in my opinion what makes the illicit market so attractive is you know ease of access to uh cannabis and price price point right so you know i'm gonna buy an eighth from my weed man down the street for you know 40 to 45 dollars because i don't want to go to a dispensary wait all that time sign in and then pay you know upwards of 65 75 dollars for that same eighth you know but when you have you know those two markets matching each other then it's really the consumer that's losing. Um, well, no, I take that back. It's actually the, the weed man that's losing because you know now, if me as a consumer, I'm going to buy a regulated product. You know, I'm willing to buy an unre unregulated product because it's cheaper, right? And let's be honest, cannabis flour is cannabis flour no matter what. You know, no one's dying for cannabis flour. Bait cartridges, stuff like that, different situation. Edibles, different situation. But cannabis is typically cannabis flour, unless you're buying K2, which then I don't know, Lord help you. Um, but yeah, so you know, seeing seeing that some illicit distributors are matching dispensary prices is, is kind of wild. I'm, I'm, you know, I think they need to go to business school because that's not, that's definitely not where their incentive lies. It, li it lies in a, in a cheaper price point. Obviously, not all people operating on the illicit market are business savvy, but given the high taxes, fees, and other financial barriers, it doesn't take a genius to realize the legal market is going to have some stiff competition for the foreseeable future. One particular bright spot for registered medical cannabis patients in Illinois is the ability to grow up to five plants per household. That may not provide you with the same range of products a dispensary might have, but it is much cheaper and you are in control of your medicine. But it's not just the number of dispensaries that might pose a problem for some residents of the city, it's also their location. I won't beat around the bush. You know, there's definitely been uh, neglect there, right? Um, you know, if you look at, from a business standpoint, if you look at... Uh, prime real estate, the South side of Chicago, you know, is, it's unfortunate, extremely unfortunate, but people are, you know, in suits are not going to look at the South side of Chicago and say, Hey, we can make a killing out there. Um, because they seldom do, right. That's why there's, there's so much disparity. There's food deserts out there. Right. Um, but on the North side, it's a completely different situation. You know, you know, there's a cash cow out there, you know, people are going to come out and buy in bulk. And that's what we see that. And so, you know, speaking to that map, you see on the North side, there's a good amount of dispensaries, right, within, within travel distance. But you go to the south side, and I mean, the only one that I even know is Mission is the Mission Dispensary, um, you know, and that's in Hyde Park. And so from where I'm at, that's 20 minutes. That's a 20 minute drive 
from where I'm at in Pilsen. Um, and in, in Pilsen, in the West Side, there's like, the only one that I know is an underground one. <laughs> so um, yeah, you know, it's unfortunate. But having said that, I do know of people that reside within the South Side of Chicago um, and reside within these impacted areas that are looking to open a shop in these in these communities. So I think that that neglect, um, you know, will finally be addressed. Um, but I think the, the biggest question after that is, what's the viability of these uh, dispensaries, these small mom pas that are going to come online? What's what is the viability of them staying online without being you know bought up by a larger entity like a GTI or a Cresco? Um, or, or somebody outside of that, you know, and, and, and that's the burning question. You know, when these things come online, will they be able to stay online and, and, and uh, provide to these communities that have, by, by and large, been neglected? And I think that's, that's what we're, obviously, we have to wait and see. Hopefully, the social equity program will allow for dispensaries to open in underserviced areas, which would include large swaths of the south side of Chicago. But small to medium-sized businesses throughout the country are also suffering financially as a result of the coronavirus. There's no guarantee they'll be able to bounce back from the lockdown, and large corporations are already frothing at the mouth to buy up shuttered businesses. Another issue that cannabis consumers in the state face is where they can consume cannabis products. At home is perfectly okay. In public, not so much. Will we eventually have cannabis lounges or European-style social clubs and coffee shops in Illinois? There needs to be. There needs to be. I think without, without, without a doubt, there needs to be. Um, you know, obviously, cannabis use is still taboo in this country. But for me, I, and again, I face so much criticism for, for coming out and saying that I want to do cannabis. So I've, I've, I've faced these arguments time and again, um, you know, literally, again, thinking back to grad school, one of the, the main points of argument was it's a gateway drug, you know, and my rebuttal to that was, okay, what is sugar to obesity? You know what I mean? Like, so I, 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 I see people's concern and I hear them. However, I think it's absurd because when you can go to a baseball game, if I can go to a King County Cougars baseball game, which is a baseball team and, and, and um, baseball stadium that markets to primarily families and I can go get a beer and there's Budweiser ads, um, you know, everywhere. I don't understand why there's a stigma towards an advertisement with somebody smoking a joint. Like, you know, drunk driving kills how many Americans every year? Um, you know, how many domestic violence uh, situations are a result of intoxication, um, you know, alcohol consumption? You know, how many people die of, you know, of alcohol consumption? And yet we still have never had a reported death or overdose of cannabis. And, you know, there are people that would come out of the woodwork um, to just protest a lounge or, or, or a coffee shop, you know, if one was presented. And, and it's so hypocritical. It's so absurd. Um, but, you know, speaking to my wife, you know, her and I have an idea. We want to start a lounge. We don't see why there isn't you know, a lounge around and especially in communities, because here's my biggest issue is that when these lounges come online are uh, to your last question, are they going to come online in communities of color that, you know, are, will our communities of color that have been impacted have the luxury and ability to enjoy these new, you know, these new wonders, right? These lounges, these coffee shops that are going to, it's going to come, I guarantee it. But will they reside within the communities that have been impacted? Again, it doesn't make any sense for people to be able to, to buy cannabis if they can't use it, right? Because the way the law is written right now is that people that are are safe to use it are only people that own property, right? So like if you rent in an apartment, if your landlord says you can't use it, then you're free to buy, but where are you going to use it? You know, you can't you can't drive, you know, it's not legal for you to drive and smoke. Um, you can't smoke out in public. 
Um, so, you know, where are you supposed to use this? If you are, you know, if you live in, in section eight housing, if you rent, you know, um, what are you supposed to do? Because the only people that have the privilege to use this are people that own property. So I think a lounge only makes sense for people that want to responsibly and legally consume cannabis outside of their home. If they're not allowed to, it's hard, man, because like, again, you know, you can have a beer at any bar, you know, you there, you can enjoy a beer at a park, you know, but you can't smoke a joint. And so for people that, you know, feel like they've been wrong, it, it's hard because they have been wrong. You know, it's, you pass this law that allows for cannabis consumption and purchase, um, you know, but you don't designate the ability for them to use it anywhere outside of their home and they have to own that home, you know, and by and large in the South side, you know, in these areas that are disproportionately impacted, these people rent, you know, a lot of, there's a, there's a high number of people or folks that rent. Um, so what are they supposed to do? And so it's hard, but for me, I tell them just continue to fight, man. I mean, obviously go about it legally, you know, go about it in a fashion that doesn't jeopardize your well-being, but continue to support organizations like Chicago Normal, um, you know, equity transformation, these, these organizations that are fighting and championing for fairness and balance within the system. Um, because as we see by and large, there is not balance. There is not fairness within the system. So yes, yeah, so, you know, keep, keep, keep doing what you're doing, do it legally, do it respectfully, but support organizations like Chicago Normal to continue that fight for equal and fair representation. Well, fingers crossed we do see some progress in this area. The city could definitely use a few consumption lounges, especially with the current political and economic situation happening right now. So any advice for young Chicagoans looking to get into the cannabis industry? The best advice I can say is just be diligent. Um, you know, you're really going to have to have a dogged attitude and spirit in this industry because it's so, it's so young, it's so juvenile, um, that there are a lot of shady characters that are operating um, within the spaces. Um, and if you're a person that, you know, really is, and, and not so much social equity, you know, if you're just a person that, you know, is a young person of color that's trying to get into the game, um, you're going to have to be diligent, you're going to have to be headstrong, you're going to have to be street savvy. Um, but just do your homework, man. Do your homework. You know, don't, don't take it personally. You're going to get turned down a lot, let me tell you. Um, but you just got to stay at it. Um, you know, stay diligent. If there, you know, if you see an opportunity to, to better your business model, if you see an opportunity to form a partnership, leap at it. Um, because, you know, it doesn't hurt to, to take a, a stab at it at all. You know, you're only going to hurt yourself if you um, allow the fear and the stigma to, you know, to, to take hold of you. Um, and that's a lot of, that's a lot of what, the, what is in this industry is just fear and stigma and the miseducation. Um, and so you're just going to have to be diligent. You're going to have to, it's going to take time. You're going to have to sacrifice. I've made a lot of sacrifices in my life. Um, but I'm starting to see some of the, you know, I'm starting to see some dividends being paid on that end. And so it is, it, if you're looking to get into this game for a quick, a quick turnaround, a quick payout, that's not the game. Um, you've been lied to. This isn't Bitcoin, you know, um, and that's just a reality, right? Um, so if you're in this game, you're in this game to play for, you're, you're in it for the long ball. You know, you're playing long ball. You're playing the long game. Um, and, and that's the best advice I, I can give somebody is don't, it's not a get rich quick scheme. I and mean, that might have been sold to you as a lie. It's definitely a lie. Um, this is a game that you have to invest some time and energy into. Serious candidates only, kids. So if we want to reach out to Alexander, where can we find him? So typically I, I am on Facebook. Don't really use it very much anymore. So my particular or my primary social media choice is Instagram. So if you want to follow me, if you want to see what I'm doing, uh, keep up with me. Um, it is underscore Sir Alexander, one word, underscore. If you want to follow, keep up with me, you know, in terms of Chicago Normal, um, you, can, you can follow me at Chicago or follow us at Chicago Normal.
Yeah, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, YouTube. And sadly, the time has come to say farewell to our guest. Alexander Perez of Chicago Normal. Uh, thank you for the awesome conversation. Good luck with uh, everything you're doing, with all your uh, projects that you're involved in. Keep pumping out those videos and uh, spreading the green gospel of mother cannabis throughout the shy. I will do that. I appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to uh, interview me. It's been an honor. You just listened to episode 38 of the Critical Grass podcast. Only two more and someone gets a gold watch. Once again, massive thanks to Alexander Perez of Chicago Normal for his insights on all things cannabis in the city. If you enjoyed the program, feel free to share with others on the internet, ethernet, social net, or whatever net you might have on hand. If you're feeling generous, despite the current socioeconomic situation, you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com or by donating via the Critical Grass website. Operators are standing by. We have more exciting guests from the wide world of weed in the pipeline, so stay tuned. My name, for the time being and foreseeable future, is Bogdan. Stay kind of curious.